Well, please open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. Our world, if you haven't noticed, is utterly insane. If you didn't believe that before, uh, the past couple months have certainly put it on display. Every day, it seems like something new happens that makes us shake, shake our head and say, what is going on here? Outrage and fear and folly and rioting and vitriol and injustice and immorality. These things seem increasingly normal in our world. And people want to know, what is the solution? How do we even attempt to fix this? Should we even try? How do we manage this? As many faithful Christians have stated, the root issue here is sin. And it isn't a new problem. It's really not surprising that sin is causing all these issues. It's been doing it ever since the garden. And so we, as a society, we look for little temporary band-aid solutions that might fix things for a temporary amount of time, but there is only one definitive answer. We find out in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that God's grand solution, his big plan, is a child descendant from Eve, one who would crush and defeat sin once and for all. And the hope for this promised child we find threaded throughout the entire Old Testament, from the blessing of Abraham to the lion of Judah to the prophet like Moses to Emmanuel born of a virgin. This hope is the essence of both the Old Testament and the New Psalm 2, our text this morning, is written by King David, king over the United Kingdom of Israel, and it is a key messianic prophecy. It's quoted and alluded to numerous times in the New Testament. This psalm was likely used in the coronation of new kings in Judah. You see, God made a covenant with David, you might be familiar with the Davidic covenant, that one of his descendants was to rule, and that his kingdom would never, never cease. Another reference in the Old Testament to God's grand solution. Think about that. What a promise. A perfect, perfect, and just king to rule over God's kingdom forever. A king to solve all the problems, to even put away sin. And so as things got worse and worse in the land of Israel, and idolatry took hold in the hearts of the people, faithful Jews were yearning and looking and searching for the king, the one who would fix all the problems and restore a righteous government. But if you read Kings and Chronicles in the Old Testament, you see that king after king, they failed. Each one died. Their kingdom wasn't forever. They, they, they're in the grave. They weren't the one. But this hope these prophecies and these covenants were fully realized in that baby born in a manger. And so this psalm, though in one sense referring to all the Davidic kings, his descendants that would rule over Judah, it ultimately speaks of the chief king of Israel, the Messiah. And so this morning, it's with that emphasis that we are going to be reading our text. So let's read Psalm 2 together now. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven laughs, and the Lord holds them in derision. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Father, this morning, would you give us an understanding of your word? Would you illuminate the text, Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit? Grant us eyes to see what you're saying. Lord, let us think rightly about our government, about the world, about the nations that rage. Lord, about your wrath and about repentance. Give us insight and wisdom this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this psalm is broken into four distinct sections of three verses each. Each three verses forms a stanza. And each section has its own speaker, kind of like a a different speaker takes center stage for that stanza and gives their thoughts, and, and then you move on. The very first stanza is the nations and peoples of the earth. That's what's in view. So, Uh, Look at the first three verses here. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Looking at verse one first, David begins the psalm by kind of expressing his surprise. Why do the nations do this? Why are the people worked up? Why are they in a rage? From Babel in Genesis to Babylon the Great in Revelation, people of the earth have long been gnashing their teeth in indignation against God. These nations, these peoples have a fiery resistance to the Lord, a heart that beats against God. The nations have raged in history by martyring God's people, by distorting the truth, and in today's age, by making him out to be utterly irrelevant. It's kind of the cry of the modern world. Don't stress about religion. It's really not that big of a deal. It's not that important. Live your life as you want to. In fact, just live as you want to, whatever makes you happy. The primary expression of the rage and the plotting of the nations is idolatry, unbelief is where we see that. Romans 1 kind of speaks to this idea. Humanity is idolatrous, unbelieving. Naturally, our hearts are turned against God. Those who refuse to worship the creator worship created things. They worship false gods. They worship the world. They worship pleasure. Perhaps they worship themselves. You see, unbelief is just misplaced worship, and it's an expression of idolatry. All who reject the Lord in unbelief are included in these nations and these peoples. Everyone who does not believe rages against the Lord. And this is epitomized by our rulers who are conspiring against God. You see, all the raging, all all the plotting of these peoples are called vain. It amounts ultimately to nothing. It's useless, empty, worthless. Why? Because how can humans overcome the most sovereign God? All this commotion 
against God is ultimately going to result in nothing. And we see that from the very, very beginning of this psalm. Verse two, the kings of this earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed to their offices. We see this play out uh, throughout the Old Testament. Sometimes they would literally have oil poured over their head, marking that they were set apart for their roles. The word anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach. That may sound familiar because it's the word from which we get Messiah. In Greek, it's called, it's Christos, from which we get Christ. So the anointed one, the chief prophet, the chief priest, and the chief king is the one we call the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. There is a worldwide rebellion against God and against his anointed one. It's a mass conspiracy, a treasonous rebellion that rejects the rule of the rightful sovereign king. Never, never has there been any government or any thought or any philosophy that has been so widely and ferociously railed against as the work of God. If you want evidence of that, look to our entertainment, our media, Look at our songs and our schools and our universities. They feed us godless philosophies and they drag our hearts away from the Lord and his revealed word. That is the work, that is the evidence of the grand conspiracy against God to try and rob him of the worship rightly due him. Listen, modern tolerance, modern acceptance that everyone always talks about is a facade. It's a mask This psalm is a peek at the inward disposition of man. Don't be fooled. If someone rejects the God of Scripture, they're raging against the Father by their idolatrous unbelief. If someone forms a Jesus to their own liking, I see this a lot when I talk to people on the streets doing evangelism. People want a Jesus that they create. They want a Jesus who doesn't judge sin or who isn't the eternal, uncreated creator God. But in creating a Jesus like that, they reject the true son revealed in scripture. They cling to an idol. If we don't submit to what God has revealed in his word about himself, then we're not on God's side. We're on the side of the nations. We're in rebellion. This grand opposition to God is sourced from the fires of hell itself. And it is bred into the hearts of every man, woman, and child, sinners from birth. This is partially what makes Jesus' sacrifice so stinking significant. Romans 5 talks about how while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus sacrificed himself not to save the friendly soldier, the ally on his side, but to save the enemy soldier who was shooting at him. He sacrificed himself for the enemy. But despite this gracious act that Jesus has demonstrated, The cry of the enemies of God is this, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Picture a lion in your your mind captured by cords and chains who rages and fights and spins and twists to be freed from the bonds of these chains. That's kind of the image of these nations and peoples of the earth. What he's saying is that the people of the earth want to have life without any accountability to God or his rule. 
God rules with a just law, a moral code, but the cry of the nations is, let us be our own gods. Let us rule ourselves. We want to cast off this oppressive rule. Where do we see this in our world? Well, we see this in the perversion of justice. We see this in the millions, millions of slaughtered unborn babies. We see this in homosexuality being pushed as good and right. We see this in a perversion of the truth that we are what we want to think we are as opposed to what God has made us to be. We see this in the pride of humanity that we should be praised and exalted apart from the creator. We see this in the praise of sexual perverseness and the approval of shameful acts. We see this in lying, in stealing, in cursing, in hatred. We see this in the turning away from the worship of God to the false gods of public opinion. We see this in the rejection of the gospel and in the persecution of the saints of the Lord. The world is actively fighting to cast off God's rule over them. They are raging and plotting against the Most High. It is a perilous task to stand against the mighty one of heaven and earth. The psalm continues on. The nations now have had their time in the limelight. Stanza two, we find ourselves zooming out a little bit above the earth, above the heavens, to the other side of the battle lines that have been drawn. Above the earth and its wicked leaders, above its raging and its plotting, sits the Most High, calmly looking down from his throne in heaven, seemingly unbothered by the so-called threat to his sovereignty. God hears what's going on. He sees everything. He watches as the people he created line up in opposition to him, as their hearts are filled with hatred for him. He observes all this, and he is not indifferent. God is not silent about this. He does not stand still at this rebellion. God's response? He who sits in, heaven, in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Look at the first verse here in this section. God is not really worried in this image. He's not worked up. He's not freaking out. He sits in heaven. He's not even standing. He's seated, sovereign, watching the world gather against him. And his response, laughter. He laughs. And this isn't a laughter of joviality or humor. This is a laughter of pure mockery. God is pointing his fingers at the peoples of the earth and mocking them. Why? Why does he mock us? Isaiah 40, says this, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. What is man that you are mindful of him. Think of who we are. We're mere creatures. We're of the dust of the earth created by the hand of the Lord. The very breath that we use to conspire against him is the breath he has provided us. The heart that pumps our blood, that rages with fury against God, is given by him. Our ability to form thoughts and to think which plot wicked plans against the Lord is granted by the Lord himself. Who do we think we are? To quote R.C. Sproul, we don't understand who God is. 
and we don't understand who we are. Have you ever watched an ant before? Just watched? My brother and I used to sit on our front porch and watch the ants run around, pick up leaves and stuff. And um, if you watch that, they, they, they wander and work and they do their thing. But at any moment, I could so choose to, this is kind of dark, but I could so choose to crush them with my foot. I mean, seriously, I could, I could kill them at any moment that I so pleased. And you know what they could do? Not much. What could a mere ant do to stop me from killing it? Yet we are closer to an ant in terms of greatness and power than we are to God. We have more in common with that ant in what we can do than we do with the most high, omnipotent God. The ants of the earth are riled up, forming their grand resistance against the omnipotent Lord of heaven and earth. The actions of the nations are so absurd, so irrational, and so hopeless. Their plots are utterly in vain. Psalm 37 says, The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The psalmist continues, Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The word wrath here literally means to flare one's nostrils. God is angry. He's spitting bullets. He's full of wrath against those who would dare defy his rule. Hebrews 10 says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And we are all, the nations are all dead in his crosshairs. This ought to induce terror in us. He terrifies them in his fury. Psalm 5, 5 through 6 says this, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 7, 12 through 13 says this, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. God's wrath is the arm of God's justice. He executes furious wrath and judgment on wrongdoing and wickedness. And this is a good and blessed truth. Listen, as Christians, we delight. I mean, we, we take joy in the wrath and justice of a holy God. Can you imagine what an unjust God would look like? Can you imagine a world where God was not holy? Just a couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with a dude on the streets down at the Provo City Center Temple where we're doing evangelism on Thursday nights. I asked him about how God should handle wicked people who, uh, who die if proper justice wasn't doled out on earth, like, like people who get away from murder. He agreed, principally, that a good God would have to execute justice on the one who deserves it. I told him that our problem is we all deserve it. We all deserve God's justice because we're all wicked. We've all sinned against the infinitely, infinitely holy God. When you commit an offense against your parents, that's bad. You're going to get in trouble. 
But treason against a reigning government has far greater consequences for you. So when we commit treasonous offenses against the holy God of the universe, we can see why God's wrath is fired up against us. Eternity in hell away from the gracious goodness of the Lord is the sentence for treasonous rebellion against the Most High. The higher in authority the one we sin against is, the more severe the punishment must be. An infinitely holy God requires a hefty sentence. The psalm says he terrifies us in his fury by speaking, saying something. But what is it that God says that could be so terrifying and so wrathful? What could be that awful? As for me, says God, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's terrifying response is simply this. I have a king, and I've established him in Zion. Who is this king that we should see God's wrath and fury expressed simply by establishing him as king? Well, we know Jesus is the king. He's not just another king in the world. He's the king, the king of kings and lord of lords. And Jesus' kingdom will never be overthrown by a rebellion. No one, nothing, nothing takes Jesus off the throne. Whatever the enemy tries, whatever the world's efforts, no matter what they do to try and destroy his kingdom, whether they try to destroy it through secular messages in mainstream media or try to destroy it by murdering God's people, it doesn't matter. Their work will come to nothing, absolutely nothing. It's vain, useless. Why? Because Jesus won't fail as king. Contrary to what many have taught, including Mormonism, his kingdom did not die for 1,800 years. Daniel 7 says his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. No one, no one is more sovereign than God Most High, who has declared and made a decree that his king will reign forever. Jesus, in his teachings, promised that nothing, not even hell itself, can succeed against the kingdom. It starts out like a little tiny mustard seed, and it grows, and it grows, and it grows. It was established after he ascended, and has steadily marched forward, slowly, sometimes imperceptibly, growing for 2,000 years. And it will continue to do so until he returns. Jesus has firmly established his king, and that's true right now. He's taken the throne. But what does that actually look like? The psalm says that he reigns in Zion, but Jesus does not currently physically live in Jerusalem. When we think about this psalm in context of the line of Davidic kings, this makes a lot of sense, right? They reigned out of Jerusalem. But in the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm in Christ, where does Jesus reign? Well, in the church age, we are the dwelling place of God. Jesus is king over his people, over the church. The kingdom, I'm sorry, the church is the visible expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Let me say that again. The church is the visible expression of the kingdom of heaven on earth. You think back to Israel, the nation of Israel was a physical nation over a geographic area. 
When Jesus came, he taught that the kingdom of heaven was coming. And this same kingdom that the people had been expecting was the kingdom that we see taught in passages like this one. And then Jesus ascends. But right before he does, after his disciples, his apostles, ask, so are you going to restore the kingdom to to Israel now? He tells his disciples to go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. To the ends of the earth. That's not a specific land. And then, a couple years later, the nation of Israel, the, 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 uh, the land of Israel, is utterly annihilated by Rome. You see, Jesus reigns from heaven over this kingdom that spread over the entire earth whose citizens are believers. To paraphrase Jonathan Lehman, where do we actually see this heavenly kingdom? Where can we spot its flag flying in the air? Where can, it, where can we meet its citizens? In the local church, that's where. The local church is like an embassy of the kingdom of God on earth. It's like an outpost in a foreign nation. We're the physical icon of his reign, his ambassadors. Our church gatherings fly the flag of the true king before the world. And we announce that Jesus is the soon-to-come conquering king. He's coming to physically establish his kingdom over the whole earth. And on that day, no opposing nation will resist him, can resist him. No enemy fortress will stand. His throne will last forever and ever. His kingdom will be never ending. And we see that kingdom right here, visibly expressed in the gathering of his citizens in the church. Jump to the next stanza here. In this stanza, Messiah takes center stage, the king. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The Messiah speaks of a decree stating that the Lord has begotten the son and will hand him possession of the nations. This is pretty crazy. The promised king is the son of the father. The king has a unique relationship with the father that sets him apart from every other king. Hebrews 1 uses this exact verse to teach. Angels don't have this kind of relationship with God. We don't even have this kind of sonship. We're adopted as sons in Christ. We are his sons, but Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Jesus isn't made king because he was adopted or proved himself to be worthy, but because of the special and unique relationship he had with the father. David, the king after God's own heart, failed in his sin. All the kings of Judah and Israel failed to live up to the standard of a righteous king. But God's decree is for a king who won't fail, for his son. These verses are Messiah quoting what the father said to the son before the foundation of the world. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Christ, by virtue of being the eternal word of God, the uncreated creator of heaven and earth, has all authority to do what he wills. But scripture records that the son humbled himself. The eternal word of God humbled himself. We see this in Philippians 2. 
says of Jesus, uh, he, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of his humil- humility, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the Son willfully submits to the Father, and the Father grants the Son this kingly position. God exalts Jesus on account of his humility. The Son's inheritance from the Father is the whole earth. That's what he receives. He will rule over people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Daniel 7, which also speaks of his rule and his kingdom, says this, Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Let me speak clearly on this point. The Bible teaches that the hope of eternal life is for anyone who repents and turns in faith to Jesus. Does not matter where you're from or the color of your skin. It does not matter what class of... It doesn't matter where you come from. Everyone who repents and turns to the Lord Jesus will be saved. The king reigns over people from all regions of the earth, every corner of the world, all cultures and regions and languages. Revelation speaks of a crowd that no one can number from every nation across the earth. They all, all of them belong to the Lord and are under his lordship. Notice the heritage of the sons are the nations, the very nations that rage and rebel. Those nations are the ones that the son inherits. I've often seen verse eight of of Psalm two used as one of those encouraging verses that you see on Facebook. You see the pretty picture of the mountains behind it and and, people share it. And the idea is one day Jesus will inherit the earth and we'll all live happily ever after. And it's a nice sentiment. But if you wanna communicate that, I'd recommend using a different verse. Because verse 9 tells us exactly what he does with his inheritance that he receives. Sorry, back here. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. The possession and inheritance of the Messiah is for him to destroy. He receives his inheritance from the Father and takes it and smashes it on the ground. That's the image here. He turns it to dust. Jesus doesn't come to reform the nations. He doesn't come to restructure them. He doesn't come to advise them. He comes to utterly annihilate them. Completely shattered pottery cannot be repaired. Messiah's victory over those who rebel against him will be complete, utter destruction. And we start to see now why this was God's answer to the raging of the nations, why this was his wrathful response. Think back in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, the days of Joshua, the conquest of Canaan. Israel was tasked with eradicating the Canaanites and taking possession of the land. They were, Israel was, the blunt instrument 
of God's judgment. Now, a lot of people in our modern day have been taken back by this. How could God do this? How could he commission their slaughter? How could, how could God do that? We're meant to see that the Canaanites' wickedness was deserving of judgment on account of its severity. How could God not cleanse the land because of what they were doing? How could he refrain from executing judgment in according with his holiness? This story of the conquest serves as an example and a warning for us. We, those in the raging nations, those in the land of the king's inheritance, are like the Canaanites by nature. We, as unbelievers, are the wicked people of the land. The army of the Lord is rearing for battle at our gates. The type of wickedness that deserves utter destruction in the Canaanites typifies our rebellion against God. The bow of the wrath of the Lord is pulled back, arrow knocked, and the Lord does not miss when he shoots. And unless you think in your mind, "Ah, I'm not that bad, I'm a good person, this isn't talking about me, I'm generally good, consider God demands perfection. A single sin, a single infraction is treason, deserving the utmost punishment for rebellion. All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone. We're all treasonous traitors. We betrayed our king. And our good works don't change the fact that we've committed treason. We deserve, we deserve this punishment just as the Canaanites deserved their punishment. Those in Jericho were utterly terrified when they heard that Israel was coming for them. They heard stories about the Exodus, how how great Egypt was in ruin after what Israel's God had done to them. Do you remember the story of Rahab? Rahab hid the Israelite spies. She protected them from the men of Jericho. And then she deserted, ran away from, turned against the cities of Canaan and joined the camp of Israel. Are you, are you poised to fall and crumble under judgment like the walls of Jericho on the day of the Lord? Or will you be saved like Rahab who rejected her people, rejected her nations, her false gods, and joined God's people? We're all unrighteous, but Jesus' perfection can be ours. And our guilty sentence can be paid for by Christ if we just believe in him. As Israel cleansed Canaan and then took possession of it, so will this Messiah king cleanse the whole earth and then take possession of it. Look at Psalm 110. It's another really keystone, cornerstone, messianic psalm in the Bible. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Listen, the modern secular image of Jesus is just wildly unbiblical. It's exclusively a Jesus without wrath who will not hold people accountable for their actions. It's a Jesus without teeth, one who will not judge us. But we can't forget about the Jesus 
who proclaimed woes against the Pharisees. We cannot forget the Jesus who will return in wrath and terror to cleanse the nations and take possession of them. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible is in Revelation chapter 19. And uh, I had had to read it because it's just so awesome. Uh, You have to look at the image that scripture paints of the just judge who returns to execute judgment and in terror rain down horror on his enemies at the end of the age. I don't have it in there. Okay, I'm just gonna read it. It's Revelation 19 verses 11 through 16. It says this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Then we get to the final stanza of Psalm 2, where the psalmist himself takes center stage. First, we have the nations. Then we have the Father. Then we have the Son. Now we have the psalmist. He says this, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. David takes the stage and gives the practical application of what has been seen and heard. Be warned and repent, O kings, from the least of you to the greatest. The peoples of the earth think themselves wise, but they are utterly without regard for the wrath of the Lord. You, sitting in the seats this morning, heed the warning you've been given. Learn your lesson from this text. See what God has decreed for you if you continue in your raging against him. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. For those who turn in repentance, there is rejoicing But notice, rejoicing with trembling. We as the redeemed live in a peaceful, serene state, forgiven and absolved of every single wrongdoing. We rejoice and we sing, but we do so in trembling, knowing that it is the grace of God that has rescued us from the great and mighty wrath of the Lord. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This invite stands in stark contrast to the rest of the psalm. Kissing the son is a reference to honoring him, like bowing at his feet and kissing his feet. The command is this, serve the Lord. Worship, honor, 
and submit to the Son. Bow down before him. These are your only options. Serve the Son or be subject to God's wrath. God is your only hope and he's your greatest threat. To perish in the way simply means uh, to die unexpectedly. You may think that your time on earth is not close to being over, that the wrath of God is not an imminent threat, but your life could end sooner than you think. Many people live like they have tons of time. I've known people, I've, known people, I've talked to people, friends who have said, yeah, I'm just not ready to give my life to the Lord. I just want to live for a little bit. I want to do things for myself. Maybe someday uh, my kids grow up. I'll, I'll deal with the faith stuff. But for today, I'm just going to do the things that I want to do, the things that make me happy. If that's you, listen. Do not presume concerning God's judgment just because you haven't seen it yet. It will come quickly, and you may not know that it's coming. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells of the parable of the ten virgins. Five of them were wise and kept watch for the coming of the bridegroom. The other five were foolish and weren't prepared for his coming. They fell asleep. When the bridegroom appeared, they were caught unprepared and they did not enter the wedding feast. If you are delaying in repenting, you are those unprepared virgins. You are but a heartbeat, one beat of your heart away from the fullness of the eternal wrath of God in hell. And who knows? God may choose this very day to strike you down. This here, then, is your warning. We are but a tick of the clock away from the brunt force of the wrath of God, from him opening the books of our works and judging us from his throne. And you, if you are, have not repented, are the rebel in the crosshairs. Be warned, the king has never and will never miss a shot. Do not presume to test God's patience. Don't delay for the sake of earthly pleasures that offer you only death. Satan is working hard to lure your hearts away from the king to your own destruction. He employs the world to distort your desires and to chain you to the pleasures and distractions of the raging nations. The world is trying to snatch your heart up, to cause you to rebel against the king by hardening your heart making you care about other things more than you care about the king. Give the world no opportunity. If we delay and reject the son, who have we in heaven or on earth who will rescue us? 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, while people are saying there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So, what do we do with this? I have a couple points in conclusion here. When considering our world, we look to the craziness, the utter absurdity of the nations that are indeed raging. What should we take away? I have four things. One, repent and turn in submission to the Son. Take refuge in Jesus. This psalm ends with, blessed are all who take refuge in him. When considering the wrath of God, the only safe place to be is in God, to hide in him. We don't take refuge in ourselves, in our works, in our government. We take refuge in Jesus Christ. 
If we place our trust in him, we will not experience the wrath of the Lord. Jesus will have taken that wrath upon himself on the cross. The nations are going to rage on. They are going to continue to fight tooth and nail against the king of kings. But this offer, this offer is extended to the nations. It's extended to the kings and the rulers, and it's extended to you. If we repent, if we take refuge in the Son, if we trust in him, our sins are forgiven, our treason pardoned. Our cosmic rebellion will not be counted against us, and we will dwell in the glorious presence of the Lord forever. Amen. We have a a gracious king, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is a just and wrathful God, and he is a merciful and gracious God. Turn this day to the Lord, repent of your unbelief and idolatry, and your sins will be forgiven. Number two, do not be surprised when the world is wicked and the nations rage. The nations are going to rage. The people are going to plot. This conspiracy is going to continue until Jesus returns to crush the nations. So be prepared for it. Be wise, be rooted in the word of the Lord. Prepare for and expect the nations to rage. Number three, our government will be judged for their wickedness. Our governments are wrong. They are wrong to rebel against God and they will certainly answer for that. Our government will answer for their plotting. The nations may, in folly, laugh at Christ and his word now, but they are in imminent danger. Listen, this should bring you comfort and hope. Justice will be done for every slaughtered baby. Justice will be done for every rejection and distortion of God's commands. Every injustice will be made right on the day of the Lord. They will give an account before the mighty one of heaven for every deed done. We can be comforted in that. We can go to bed at night knowing that justice will be done. All injustices, all of them will be brought before God and judged. We can't do that. We're not the ones who are, who are the executing arm of God's judgment on earth now. He will take care of that. He will judge them either in the eternal fires of hell or they will repent and his judgment will go on Jesus on the cross because he's gracious. Last, the only solution to the raging of the nations is the gospel. That is our solution. That's the fix. Our trust is not in government. It's not Listen to me here. Don't trust. Don't put your soul hope in fallen man to work out all the problems on earth. If you're waiting for the world to get their act together, together, to act justly, apart from the working of God in their heart, don't hold your breath. It ain't gonna happen. But that's no reason for despair and hopelessness. If our hearts are set on the hope that our government will self-correct, then our hope is set on the wrong thing. Our hope must be in the Lord and in his perfect coming kingdom. Anyone who rejects the king 
rejects his perfect kingdom and his sacrifice for sins. There is no other king who will stand, no kingdom in which we will be secure. There is but one eternal kingdom and but one eternal king. And we either rage against him or we bow before him. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you have set your king. You have established him as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, we know that on the last day, the Lord Jesus will kill the enemy by the breath of his mouth. We know that he is powerful and that you have sent him to execute justice. Lord, our hearts cry out for justice. Lord, let us be people who care about justice and righteousness. Lord, let us be Christians who delight in the wrath of the Lord, knowing that it is, it is an expression of your holiness. And Lord, thank you for salvation. Father, for those who have not repented, those who have not turned in faith to the Lord, who are in this room or listening to this, Father, cause them to turn to you. Cause their hearts to be enlightened, Lord. Let them see that they are the raging nations and that they are in danger. Father, reveal to them the gloriousness and the security of your Son. Thank you for the blood that was shed on the cross. Thank you that we can have Jesus' perfect righteousness. Thank you that our punishment was paid for by him on the cross. Thank you for being a great and holy God. Lord, we submit to your rule. We bow at your feet. We kiss your feet. We honor you. Lord, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven this day. We love you, Lord, as your people. We honor you and we worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.